Welcome back to Morpeth Moments. I'm Marlene and I'll be giving controversial accounts of true crime, about murder, other tragedies and sometimes some events of interest involving people who have had connections with the town of Morpeth, New South Wales and its surrounding districts. As convicts, soldiers and settlers made this area their home, stayed for a while to discover their niche or moved on to seek their fortune. The stories are based in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I tell my stories with great respect for the victims and their families. The accounts are researched and referenced by myself from open sourced information, family research, state archive records and trove newspapers. Please feel free to email me. My address is on the podcast page. If there is any misinformation or you would like to add or find out more, please contact me here. I retain all the information I find. Music by Kevin MacLeod. Sound effects from YouTube Library. The Hexham Bunyip. <laughs> On the 25th of March 1925, a story appeared on page 3 of the Don Dorigo Gazette and Guy Fawkes Advocate under the title of Hunting the Bunyip of Hexham Swamp. It appears that three men, Sam Milgate, Bill Wallace and Billy Parks, back in 1879 swore they heard, during an evening's wild duck hunt in the Hexham Swamps, what resembled the roar of a lion and were terrified by the appearance of a creature with eyes like golden orbs in the night. Here is the story in full. Headline Hunting the Bunyip of Hexham Swamp What they saw in 79 Three men temporarily struck dumb Eyes like golden orbs in the night By J.G. Ex-Sergeant of Police Three men declared they saw the bunyip of Hexham Swamp in 1879, and in the following account, Mr. J. G. Brown of Croydon tells their story and relates how he took part in an exciting hunt at night time. Every word I can vouch for as true, he says, and there are many alive in Plattsburgh who will remember the strange noise of that time. During the year 1879, I was employed as a miner and had been for many years residing in Plattsburgh, which is some miles distance from Hexham Swamps. 
Work in the mines was very slack, miners being idle for a fortnight or three weeks at a time, with half or one day's work only, and so on, for many months. Consequently, the men had to do many things to procure sufficient food to feed their families. Some owned boats, which were housed at the head of the Iron Bark Creek, a tributary to the Hunter River, where they would go and spend their time fishing, the catch being carefully salted, smoked and cured, whilst others would go to Hexham Swamps for the purpose of shooting wild duck and other waterfowl and so help to provide food. This is what happened to three well-known miners, men as brave as ever stepped in shoe leather, who would not hesitate to descend into a mine full of foul air or black damp or falling roof to attempt the rescue of a comrade in danger, in connection with the alleged visit of Bunyip to Hexham Swamps at that time. But I will firstly roughly describe the Hexham Swamp and the method generally used to secure good bags by shooting wild duck. On this particular evening, the three men, Sam Milgate, Bill Wallace and Billy Parks, all old residents of Plattsburgh, had been concealed, waiting during the afternoon until about 8.30pm. But as no ducks happened along, they were preparing to return to their homes. While saying unkindly things about the absence of the ducks, Without warning, a tremendous roar, like that of a lion, but very much more powerful, coming from one throat, rang out in the still night. They looked in the direction from where the sound came, and they subsequently stated that all they saw were two golden orbs, about the size of soup plates, at a distance of twenty yards. The loudness of that roar and the sight of those golden orbs entirely took their speech and the power of their arms away. They looked at each other, blankly and stupidly, quite unable to utter a word or to lift their guns to their shoulders and fire. They simply walked to their homes, a distance of about two miles, without exchanging one word on the way or wishing the other good night when parting. It was some days later that Wallace and Milgate met at the pit top on their way to work. Both men glared at the other for nearly a minute, without speaking. Then Wallace was heard to say, My God, Sam, what was it? Sam replied, Don't know. I wouldn't take a hundred pound and go there again. The serious look on the faces of the two men attracted the attention of others. Inquiries were made, and that evening the tale of the bunyip was common talk all over the district. Many parties were formed, some of which never reached the swamp. Others returned with very exaggerated accounts of their experiences and bravery. Others again were unable to hear the slightest sound on their visit to the swamp. At that time, my father was the proprietor of the Queen's Head Hotel, Plattsburgh situated about two and a half miles from the southern edges of the swamp and one night a party of eight friends were seated in one of the parlours emphasised their arguments with several rounds of drinks and decided that the bunyip or whatever it was must be caught dead or alive they arranged to meet at the hotel on the following night at seven o'clock with guns and ammunition 
then immediately proceed to the swamp and beat it from end to end in the endeavour to find and do battle with the monster. When the party left the hotel about eleven o'clock for their homes, each was capable of storming the heights of Delhi and taking it single-handed. At seven o'clock the following evening, two only, Tom and Bill Scott, arrived with a horse, spring cart, two dogs, muzzle-loading gun, etc. It was arranged that we should move forward in open order at intervals of twelve paces, taking a northerly direction. We had gone about hundred yards, and the dogs working splendidly just in front, when our quarry spoke about half a mile direct ahead. What a roar! It resembled that of a lion, but the tone was half as loud again, and at that distance made the still air vibrate around us, and I should say could be heard fully two miles away. We all came to a halt without orders, and I can assure you that for half a minute I wish that I had not been one of the party. Word was passed along the line to be very careful. Shoot straight with both barrels on sight, then forward again in silence. As we reached the spot where it was estimated that the sound had come from, and, expecting to be confronted with the monster, another roar similar to the one previously came from the right or easterly direction, 300 yards distance. So we altered our course and made towards a clump of oak trees on slightly rising ground. This took us nearly half an hour. While we were passing through the trees, all alert, a bit excited, but prepared to fight to the last man, a loud screech was heard come yards in front. The dogs gave a bark and bounded off at a gallop into the shallow water, which, as we went along, gradually deepened. We hastened as fast as the conditions would allow. Then the dogs suddenly returned to us, looking backwards with their tails down and giving vent to low, angry growls, as though afraid of something. All the coaxing we could do would not induce these dogs to go forward again and lead us to whatever had frightened them. Just at that moment I saw something white in the reeds, and calling to Bill Scott, who was nearest, I levelled my gun and fired. Immediately the white object rose up about six feet, and I was about to fire my second barrel when it fell. On going forward I discovered I had shot a large pelican, which we afterwards took home, and the skin served as a bedside mat for many years. We pushed forward for some distance. The dogs refused to follow, remaining near the trees growling angrily. As the water was then waist-deep, it being 11pm, we made back to the horse and cart and home. On reaching the Queen's Head Hotel about midnight, cold and wet to the waist, we exchanged experiences of the night's adventures over more of John Bull's medicine, retiring to bed about 2am. Although it may appear strange, but after that night, the bunyip, or whatever it may have been, was not seen or heard again on Hexham Swamps up to the time of my leaving the district, ten years later. For a long time the party were generally, and I in particular, credited with having either destroyed or driven the monster from the swamps.
End of story. But before we could all get excited that we had a strange monster on the loose in the Hexham swamps, William Turton wrote to the Newcastle Sun a year before the article was published in 1924 to let everyone know that he and his grandfather, John Hannell, solved the mystery of the Hexham Bunyip back in 1864. William John Turton, local cabinet maker, engineer and businessman, born at the Wheatsheaf Inn at Hexham in 1856. He spent his youth in Sydney, undertaking his apprenticeship as a pattern maker. He returned to Hexham, taking up work in the railways in the locomotive department and as a train driver. Leaving the railways, he joined the harbours and rivers department, working at the dike and later at Walsh Island as a pattern maker. Retired in 1910 after 20 years service, spending the rest of his life in the region until his death in 1930. His diaries were received in May 2016 at the Newcastle University Archives in Cultural Collections. His diaries date from 1872 to 1909 and record daily life in the Hunter. He was celebrated as the inventor of a cemetrope or heliograph, a form of wireless communication using sunlight and mirrors to transmit messages in Morse code, invented in 1875 when he was a sapper in the New South Wales Volunteer Engineer Corps. He was also known as the person who, along with his grandfather, John Hannell, of tracking down the mysterious creature, the bunyip, that haunted the Hexham swamps. Turton writes, in the Newcastle Sun, 23rd of January, 1924, page 4. Hexham Bunyip, 60-year-old story. The Haunted Swamp. I have been much amused to read the comments in the Newcastle Sun, read the Bunyip at Hexham Swamps. I was born at Hexham in 1856 in the Wheatsheaf Inn, built and owned by the late John Hannell, who, I might state, was my grandfather. I well remember a conversation on the Bunyip, so called by many of the residents, but called by the Irish residents the Banshee, and among these present were the late James Brown of Duckenfield Colliery, Mr Eels of Duckenfield, F. Beaumont, Government Surveyor, and others. The conversation ended in a pledge being taken to find out what the mysterious noise was. About 1864, my grandfather, who was a noted duck shooter, and others started investigating, and as he and myself were almost continuously on the swamps, it was not long before we located the bunyip, which proved to be not a mosquito, but a bird named the bittern. After some years' absence from the district, I returned to Exum in 1918 for a period of two years and while there the bunyip and banshee were still to be heard. I may add that every moonlight night in fine weather, up to the time I was 13 years old, I spent a good deal of time in the middle of the swamp, in the water seated on a tuft of rushes, shooting ducks as they came in at night to feed. We sent all of our game to Kipak's brother Sydney Market, for which we received a cheque fortnightly. Description of the bittern. 
The Australasian bittern is a heavy-set, partially nocturnal heron with upper parts that are patterned dark brown, buff and black, and upper parts that are streaked brown and buff. The eyebrow and throat are pale, and the side of the neck is dark brown. The bill is brown and the legs are greenish. Australasian bitterns live in dense beds of reeds and rushes, where they are difficult to see. Additionally, when alarmed, they stand completely still, with their neck stretched upwards and bill pointing skywards. Sometimes they even sway in the breeze, in time with the surrounding reeds. This combination makes them merge in remarkably well with the surrounding vegetation. It is hardly surprising that the species is seldom seen or recorded. I've placed an image of the bird and an MBN news clip link about it on my podcast and Facebook page. The sound at the beginning of the podcast was an actual bitten bird call. Link of this can also be found there. Now for more about William Turton, who was little known as the co-inventor of such an important piece of equipment for the armies of the world. The Newcastle Sun, Tuesday 21st of July 1925, page 8. First heliograph, Newcastle man's work, inventor's luck. Many inventions that play important parts in the 20th century wartime equipment had accidental origins from obscure sources. Few people know the origin of the heliograph, and fewer still that an old resident of Newcastle played an important part in giving to the armies of the world this indispensable means of communication. Though the value of the heliograph might be assessed in millions, the two men responsible did not get a penny for their labours, nor any great official recognition, if any at all. Colonel Parrott, a veteran of the Zulu War and ex-lieutenant of the New South Wales Volunteer Engineer Corps, who conceived the idea, has disappeared. An ex-sapper, W.J. Turton, who assisted in the experiments and made the first heliograph, is now an old man spending the rest of his days in peaceful seclusion at his home in Stockton. References to the invention of the heliograph, or cinematrope, as it was called then, are contained in a letter of congratulation to Turton from Parrot, and a newspaper paragraph published a few years after the cinematrope was universally adopted by the fighting forces of the world. Parrot's letter, faded but still legible, has been framed by Mr. Turton and occupies a conspicuous position in his home. It reads, To Sapper W.J. Turton, I am instructed to inform you that, by a resolution of the Committee of the Cause, their praises are unanimously recorded to you for the voluntary service you rendered in the construction of the Cimatrope, which has now been handed over for the use of the Cause. Signed, Lieutenant Parrott, New South Wales Volunteer Engineer Course. The newspaper paragraph makes sarcastic reference to the attitude of the government towards Parrott. It reads, Lieutenant Parrott, now Colonel, who is down with sunstroke in Suakim, is one of the best scientific men New South Wales has produced. 
He is the inventor of the system of sun disk signals, which received great praise from the British scientific press and met with immediate adoption in European military circles. It was Parrot's system which was successfully used in connection with the distressed garrison at Ikawi, besieged by the Zulus. The Sumatrope is the same as the present instrument, except that the heliograph stands on a higher tripod and has an improved shutter control. The history of the heliograph dates back to 1875, when Sapper-Turton was a member of Lieutenant Parrot's Corps, which had one of its periodical training camps near Middlehead, not far from Sydney, that year. In civilian life, Parrot was a surveyor with an inventive strain of mind, and Turton was an apprentice at Chapman & Co's Iron Foundry in George Street, Sydney. Turton learned from his friend that while working with his theodolite, the sun shining on the lens and reflecting the light some distance away had given him the idea that signalling by this method might be possible. At that time, flag signalling was the only method used by the military forces of the world. The first experiment was carried out the next day when Parrot stationed himself several hundred yards away from his subordinate and they conveyed messages in code to each other by means of mirrors, using pieces of cardboard to shut off the sun's rays and so differentiate between dots and dashes. Night experiments were made with a lamp and a shutter. After several practices, the scheme was pronounced a success and plans were drawn up by Parrot for the first heliograph. Convex mirrors with sight holes in the centres were used. The scintillating effect of the sun's rays was provided by the shutters, which exposed and covered the glass at the will of the signaller. Turton realised the value of the invention and endeavoured to induce his friend to patent it, but Parrot declined saying that everything that he did was for the benefit of the cause. A claim to the invention was made by an imperial officer in service in India, but this was discountenanced by Major Pratt of the Royal Engineer Corps at a dinner given in Sydney to non-commissioned officers. Major Pratt said that he had seen plans of Parrott's invention at the Chatham Naval Institute, England, six months before the other officer made his claim. End of paragraph. Death Notice, Newcastle Morning Herald, 2nd of May, 1930. A Stockton Pioneer, late Mr. W. Turton. Stockton lost one of its pioneers by the death of Mr. William Turton last night. Born at Hexham in 1856, the late Mr. Turton, at an early age, joined the railway services as a cleaner and worked himself up to the position of a mail train driver. For many years he was engaged in the Western Line, with his home station at Bathurst. Retiring from the railway department, Mr. Turton went on the land for a few years and then joined the Public Works Department as a foreman when the department's repair shops were situated at the end of the dike. On the opening of Walsh Island, Mr. Turton was transferred to the island, where he was employed as a foreman pattern maker until he retired from the department six years ago. Mr. Turton is survived by his wife, three sons, 
Mr. William Turton of the Public Works Department, Newcastle, Mr. Albert Turton of Sydney, and Mr. Roy Turton of Stockton, and five daughters, Ms. Darm Smith, Murphy, Ross, Webster, Houston, and Mrs. Amy and Evelyn Turton. The interment will take place tomorrow afternoon in the Church of England section of Sandgate Cemetery. A little information about the Wheatsheaf Inn, Hexham. Erected in 1856, the imposing two-storey hotel was the second one locally to carry the same name. Both were run by jovial host John Hannell. It was known as the Halfway House, or the house that Jack built. It became the changing post for coach horses on the Newcastle-Maitland journey in the Colonia era. John Hannell had moved from Newcastle to Hexham in 1843 to operate the original Wheatsheaf Inn owned by the Spark family in the 1830s. This was later destroyed by fire in 1853. He advertised having a safe and commodious punt for horses, carriages and drays between his hotel and the opposite shore. These were the days long before any bridge existed in Hexham. The solid, rebuilt Wheatsheaf Inn finally became Hannell's family home instead and was renamed Riverview or Hannell House. It was demolished in 1960 and with it went many memories of those early Lower Hunter pioneers, the Hannell family. William's father, Joseph Turton, was a licensee of the Wheatsheaf Inn when William was born at Hexham. Joseph was married to John Hannell's eldest daughter, Elizabeth Ellen. Joseph later left the area with his family to work on the railways and became a well-respected locomotive inspector for the railway department. He was killed tragically at Bathurst, New South Wales in 1889 when hit by a train. I have placed some images of the Wheatsheaf Inn at Hexham, New South Wales and just for interest the railway station at Bathurst from the 1880s on the podcast and Facebook pages. Thank you for listening to Morpeth Moments. I hope you return to hear about stories involving the people and places of Morpeth and its surrounding districts. Bye for now.